Well, good morning. Uh, it's been a great morning so far. We are going to continue our series called Seven Letters. On a side note, I brought this, um, this old mailbox here, and I actually preached three messages and then realized this says letters on it. I just, I tell people I'm slower than most, you know? But uh, we're talking about seven letters, and um, these are the specifically seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church in Revelation. So we're looking at each of the letters. Is that really that funny? <laughs> My goodness. All right. So the Apostle John has this amazing encounter with Jesus. In the book of Revelation chapter 1, it talks about this encounter. He's exiled to this, this island called uh, Patmos. Patmos. He's exiled there, and because, he says, because of the word of God. And uh, he had served very faithfully in various places, very powerful apostle of God. And at this, at this island, Patmos, he has this encounter with Jesus. Jesus appears to him, begins to speak to him, begins to show him about things that were to come, things that were and were about to come. And, I mean, he has this radical encounter, so much so that he says, he says about himself, I fell to the ground as though I were dead. He saw Jesus glorified. Jesus glorified is described as one who had, had hair that was white, and uh, his face was shining like the sun. His, his feet were like burnished bronze, and out of his mouth became a, uh, came a two-edged sword. And Jesus tells him, I want you to write letters to the seven churches. So John becomes a dictator. He dic not a dictator politically, but he dictates, he dictates exactly word for word what Jesus says to him. And so we've been looking at these letters, uh, very powerful letters, because Jesus in chapter 1 is described as one who's walking among the churches. He's walking among the churches. He knows what's happening in his church. He knows what's happening, uh, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, he's, he has praise for the good. He identifies the problems, the bad. And then um, he, he comes up with a promise for those who overcome. And so um, John dic dictates these letters. And then um, they're, they're sent to the seven churches. Now, the seven churches are in Asia Minor. And I think we have a, a, a photo of that or a graphic of that. And you'll see the seven churches here. And we're going to cover the one called Pergamum today. Pergamum in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2. But up to this point, we looked at um, what, it is, what is it that we do when we are so busy in life and so consumed with life that we forget our love relationship with Jesus. We talked about that. That was the church of Ephesus. Last week we talked about the church of Smyrna. And what is it that we do when the pressures of life are so intense that we, we don't know how to handle them? And, and Jesus gives us an answer for that. Today we're going to look at, um, like I said, the church at Pergamum. And the church at Pergamum um, gives the, it identifies the answer to the question, what do you do when the culture around you is pressing in so much in your lives, it's even seeping into the church and impacting 
impacting the way Christians live their lives. So I want to talk today about compromise. And I came across a story I want to share with you very quickly. Compromise. The story says this. A hunter went out into the forest to shoot a bear. With Winterfest approaching, he planned to make a warm coat out of the bear skin. Soon he saw a bear coming toward him. He raised his gun and he took aim. Wait, said the bear. Why do you want to shoot me? The hunter replied, because I'm cold. The bear replied, but I'm hungry. So maybe we can come to a compromise. In the end, the hunter was well enveloped with the bear's fur. And the bear had eaten his dinner. Moral of the story, compromise in relationships is good. Compromise otherwise can be very, very harmful, as we found out with the hunter. All right, so I want to get into this, this uh, letter that Jesus writes to the church at Pergamum. And we're in Revelation chapter 2. You can turn in your Bibles there. We'll also have the, the scriptures on the screen uh, today. Um, but Pergamum is a city, like you saw on the map, it, there's, there's a proximity of all these seven churches. It's about 65 miles from the church we covered last week, Smyrna. And Pergamum uh, was a very unique city. It was, it was a very wicked city. It had a temple to Zeus there. It had another temple to this god called Asclepius. You could say that with uh, with me. Say that with me, Asclepius. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> there was this god. There was this temple to this god Asclepius, who was known as a healing god, and people would travel from near and far to come and receive healing from this god. This this city, Pergamum, which is now modern day Bergama, Bergama in Turkey. Um, was, was riddled with idolatry, with satanic worship, with occultism. It was a very, very dark place. A very dark place. And Jesus is writing to the, the church, the Christians in this city. He's writing to people who are, who are seeking to honor him and love him and, and grow in him and live a life that's set apart for him. This is, this is the church at Pergamum. Um, the, the altar to Zeus was, was massive. In fact, it's now in a museum in, in Berlin. And um, it was this massive altar. And Zeus was known as the God of all gods. And so Jesus now addresses the church in Revelation chapter 2. And uh, there's some pictures about Pergamum. There's Acropolis that shows the high place. This is where... Um, uh, various things are, are still located outside of the city. You'll see also the city in the backdrop of, of one of the photos. Um, but in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Well, John had just saw this visibly in chapter 1. He saw that sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And, and Jesus, in each of these letters, uses a specific aspect of who he is 
to each of the churches for a very specific reason. And I hope to get into that as we, as we move forward. Why did Jesus have a sharp double two-edged sword in his mouth? And why did he identify it to this church specifically, Pergamum? So he says, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. He goes on to say in verse 13, I know where you live. This word know carries the idea of experientially, I've seen what you're going through. I saw, I saw, I see what is happening to you. I know. It's not just a knowledge. It's an awareness through experience and observation. Jesus knows what this church is going through. And I want to say to us today, It would not surprise me in the slightest if Jesus, like he walked amongst the seven churches, walks through this church. He's aware of what's going on in our lives. He's aware of our struggles. Nothing escapes his awareness. He knows what challenges you personally face. He knows what what is coming against this church and what is is opposing the work of God in this city. There's nothing that, his, that escapes his awareness. So, so Jesus is saying to them, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Wow. So they're living in this city where Jesus acknowledges that Satan has a stronghold in this city. His throne is a, is a place of power. It represents a position of authority, a throne. I mean, we see, um, I was at my in-laws yesterday and they had this... Um, this thing playing for Queen Elizabeth like all day on one of these channels, you know? And, and it showed the, you know, the, the crown that she wore and the position she had and the, and the places where she sat in authority because she was given authority over specific things as the Queen of England. Well, Satan has a throne in this city. This is not someone speculating. This is not someone... Uh, just saying it's an evil, wicked seed. This is Jesus himself saying there is wickedness. It's a dark place. Satan is enthroned in that city. Paul writes to the Corinthians about, about principalities and powers and things that are, that are uh, uh, spirits of wickedness that are in high places. We need to be aware that it's, I mean, just because we don't see things, you understand, doesn't mean it's not a reality. There's angelic activity and there's demonic activity. And here in the Bible, Jesus is specifically saying, I know, where, I know where you live. I know what you're going through. I know what oppositions you face. And I know surrounding you is a very demonic presence and place in this city of Pergamum. So Jesus goes on to say, yet you remain true to my name. You remain true to my name. Now this is amazing. I mentioned earlier the altar of Zeus. And this is a massive altar. Um, and we only have a picture of the, of the marble steps and the, um, all the beautiful artwork and layout that uh, takes you to the altar. And you may have seen this as a very famous um, piece of architecture that, that has depicts uh, carvings of the gods fighting against each other. And I didn't show it because there's nudity in there, but it, there, it's, it's amazing architecture. You know, um, but in at the actual altar behind these steps and behind these columns, there was an altar. You entered into this place, and it is said that there were sacrifices twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. 
There was all kinds of sexual prostitution. There's prostitution and sexual uh, activity and, and things of that nature in this place. Uh, it's called the, the throne or the seat of Satan because that's what the believers in that day called that place. The believers said, that is, this, is, this is Satan's seat. This is the place where he dwells. And he had established a very strong, powerful presence in this city. But it says, yet you hold true to my name. Come on, this is amazing. It doesn't matter how wicked it could get. I, I don't know any city that's been, uh, been claimed as wicked as this one. In fact, um, it, it's been said that let me see if I can find one. It was, it, was, it was coined one of the most wicked cities in the history of the ancient world. But these believers, they're, they're clinging to their faith. They're holding on to God. They're, you know, they were strong, even though all of this opposition, and, and what I touched on last week applies this week, part of this idolatry and wickedness that the believers in that day found themselves on was found themselves in was that they had to declare that Caesar is Lord annually. They had to burn incense to him. And when they didn't, which no Christian would feel comfortable doing, it, it set them up for bullying, persecution, death, imprisonment, loss of jobs, loss of business. All this opposition took place because of their stand for their faith. And so here they are, you just can't imagine what it's like, but um, Domitian legalized brutality against Christians. You could be walking down the street and just get beat up because of your faith. You could, you could be at work and someone drag you out and, and beat you. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy to think what they went through. But it says, yet you hold true to my name. I mean, I don't... I don't I can't imagine that, but it's really a test of where you're at. And I begin to think, like, how many people would throw in the towel with that kind of opposition they're facing, you know? So Jesus goes on to say this. this these are all the words of Jesus. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Or it could be translated, the faithful one. Which it goes on to say about him who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There's that statement again, where Satan lives. This guy named Antipas, um, history has it that this guy named Antipas was very active as a Christian casting out demons. And so he was, he was using the authority, the God-given authority that all of us in this room have, followers of Jesus. He's casting out devils and... Um, the, the government and the pagans did not like what was happening. So the pagans tried to conspire against him and, and uh, have the government stop his activity. So Antipas says, this is, this is, what I, this is who I am. I, and could you imagine? I mean, it was, like a, uh, it, it was like craziness. Everywhere you went, there's probably demonic activity, right? We don't see any of that here in America. Actually, believe it or not, I was talking to one. Actually, I wasn't talking. I was, I was reading something, and I can't even recall exactly what it was. But the author, who seemed to be a very prominent person and experienced in what he was saying, said this. 
He said, you don't see a lot of demonic activity in America, but let me tell you, there's more, more people um, under the influence of demo- the demonic in America than any other nation. Now, this is just a person's statement. I'm, he doesn't have tests to prove it and all this. But when you think about it, um, Satan, Satan is he, he's crafty, you understand. And he's not going to show himself if he can get away with it. So he guises himself in ways, and many people could be deceived and not even know that there's demonic activity in their lives. You understand that? So, but here, it was, it was out in the open. I mean, they were openly, the, you see the smoke billowing from the top of the Acropolis 24-7. I mean, the stench of, of charred flesh, animals, and things of that nature, you, that's a normal part of your everyday life, right? And there's demonic presence, there's demonic activity that, that they see right before them because it, it's just, it was a very wicked city. So here's this guy just casting out devils, setting people free. But they said, repent from your activity. And he said, I- I'm not going to repent from my activity. This is who I am. And he ended up being burned alive in a, in a kettle. There's more to the story, which I'm not going to share right now. But it-, it cost him his life. But Jesus knew Antipas' name. Jesus knew him. And he said, even Though the faithful one, my faithful witness, Antipas, lost his life, you're still holding fast to my name. That's, that's just powerful. That's powerful to me when I think about it. Um, so this, this guy's dead, um, but they, they're still pressing into God, wanting to serve God with all their heart. In verse 14, it says this. Um, it says, where Satan lives. Yeah, I, get, I think I cut off some of my passage. Do you have your Bible in front of you? Or let me just read it up here. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So Jesus had some praise. This is the typical pattern of these letters. I have some praise. I'm going to identify a problem. And so here's the nevertheless, or the but. Whenever you, you bring all this praise to people and then you say but, you're about to just, you know, you're about to switch gears and cut off every praise you just gave to, to focus on something negative. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. There's some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual adultery. The story is found in Numbers chapter 20, chapters 22 through 25. Um, the Israelites are traveling toward the promised land. And there's this king that opposed them. His name was Balak. And Balak hired this guy Balaam to curse, to speak a curse over God's people. So the Israelites, imagine maybe two million or more people traveling through this land. And so they get, Balak gets to this high place, and he's, he's hoping the Israelites will be cursed. But Balaam was not allowed by God to curse God's people. That should say something to us, you know? I mean, God, God has the ability to block curses that are even being spoken against us. And, and so Balaam tries to curse unsuccessfully God's people three times. 
Three times he was not allowed to curse God's people. But what happened was this, and I'll just reread that portion of the passage. He taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So he realized he couldn't curse God's people, so he decided to come up with a different strategy. And the strategy was, I'm going to entice them by bringing uh, before the army of Israel naked Moabite women. And they're going to be marching along. The, the Israelite army is going to be marching along. And then these naked Moabite women are going to be around them, enticing them, and trying to draw them in to sin. Well, guess what? It worked. It worked. So, so they fell to the, the, um, the enticement or the enticing presence of these, this naked Moabite women. And, and this is where moral compromise comes in. You see, the outside pressure of persecution didn't get to them. But when that doesn't work, the enemy's got another strategy. And the strategy is, I can't get them from outside, I'm going to get them from within. And so Jesus says to them, some of you hold to the teaching of this guy Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. What exactly is the doctrine of Balaam? The doctrine of Balaam it takes on the mindset like, I can't curse them. Let's set them up so they can curse themselves. I, I can't curse them. God's not allowing me to curse them. But I can introduce moral compromise into their lives. You see, the enemy, even, even when Jesus resisted the enemy, the Bible says that he left him for an opportune time. Because the reality is, the enemy's not going to give up on us. He's going to try and find a weakness and expose that to tear us down. But the reality is that, that we can resist. We, we can stay strong when we press into God, when we surround ourselves with people of God. When, when we're serious about our faith, when we're crying out to God for strength, for, uh, you know, uh, and we're leaning on people. Listen, God can deliver us. The enemy's not that strong. God is way stronger, right? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth. This is what Jesus said. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's sending us. Therefore, go in that power and that authority. Amen? Amen. So, so Balaam comes up with this scheme. It's called the doctrine of Balaam, um, where they, they come to a place of moral surrender. They had lowered their standards, they had lowered their, their standards because the people of Israel were told to be separate, right? They were, they were told to be separate. He, he didn't want them intermarrying. He didn't want them worshiping other gods. He didn't want them involved in idolatrous worship. Um, he didn't want them eating meat sacrificed to idols. They were called to be separate. They, and they, were, they had very specific um, instructions on how to remain separate. Well, guess what? They compromised. And I, and I only bring that up because, first of all, the Scripture says this. But second of all, because we live in a world that really is, is trying to creep its way into the church of Jesus Christ. And what, we, what, what has happened over the years in my personal observation is that we've lowered our standards. And some of them needed to be lowered because there's, there's this, this line between religion, religious rules... And, and then, what is pure and holy to God? Because back in the day, I, I remember hearing stories, this was a little bit before my time that should age me, 
Um, there were people that weren't allowed to dance, you know? And this was like one of the church's standards, depending on which church you went to. There weren't, you couldn't go to the movies, you know? There was, there was all these kinds of things that were sort of just like rules of men, but they were, they were put in there for good intent. Do you understand what I'm saying? But when that crumbled to the ground, people, and, and people said, wait a second, the Bible doesn't tell us we can't do this. People rushed far to the other side, and now they're, they're like, how far can I go before I cross the line and not dishonor God? But in reality, most people have. Many people who had that mentality have crossed the line. They've compromised. They've compromised their purity, their holiness, their love for God. And it became a list of rules that they live by, trying not to cross the line, instead of a love affair with the God that they serve. Listen, I haven't cheated on my wife, but I sure am not going to give the impression I'm cheating on my wife. And say, well, honey, I didn't cheat on you. I'm sorry. Why are you getting mad at me? Because I want to protect her heart. I, I want her to trust me. I want her to know that she is safe with me. And I never want to put her in a place where she doesn't feel safe. You understand? So I can only give you an analogy of a relationship on earth, and, and God does this many times through Paul's writings and such, that, that it's, it's not about this list of do's and don'ts as much it is, as it is about a love affair with God. You understand? And, and I don't ever want to give him the impression, I don't want to ever lead him to uh, see my heart being, well, I can go this far and no more and still not break your rules. I love him. I'm passionately in love with him, and I want more of him in my life. And so this is what we see, this moral compromise by the Israelites. They lowered their standard. They began thinking, acting, and behaving like the world. And so I wanted to give a little illustration. So if this, if this pure cup of water represents the church, what happened in that day was this church was, was facing massive persecution, massive opposition, and then um, they, they held fast to his name. But the problem was they let people be among them that, that had held to this doctrine of Balaam, which was moral compromise. It's okay if I do this. There's grace for that. It's okay if I lie, steal, cheat, you know, go and do rampant stuff. You know, it's okay because God will forgive me. It's, it's the cheap grace mentality, if you understand what I'm saying. And what happened was moral compromise. If this represents the world and the culture of the world, it became, began to infect the church. Do you see this? It began to infect the church. This is what the doctrine of Balaam um, conveys. And Jesus says about this teaching or doctrine of Balaam, he says that um, I don't like it. I, I have a problem with you accepting people that carry that idea. It, it's a wrong doctrine. It's a wrong teaching. And you can't embrace people that, that have that teaching and allow them to come and infect people. It's like, it's like gangrene or leprosy. You know, the longer you're around it, the longer it's near you, the, the more likely it's going to affect you. You with me? Jesus goes on to say this in verse 15. He says, Likewise, in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Now, this is not the first time Jesus brought up the Nicolaitans. In fact, he brought it up in the book of Ephesians, or, or excuse me, the letter to Ephesus, the letter that was written to the church of Ephesus. And in, in, uh, in fact, I'll just read the verse that he brought it up in, Revelation 2.6. It says, but this you have in your favor. This was the church of Ephesus whose heart had grown cold toward God. This you have in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here Jesus is bringing up to now the church at Pergamum. The church at Ephesus did not allow the Nicolaitan influence inside the church. We're talking about influences inside the church now. Okay? The, the Nicolaitan influence did not get into the church of Ephesus, but it did get into this church, the church at Pergamum. And Jesus says, I hold this, I hold this against you. You, are hold, you have people among you that are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, we probably ought to figure out what that is. You want to know the truth? I have no idea. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The, Greek, the, the word for Nicolaitans in the Greek carries this idea. Those who conquer or have victory over the people. Those who conquer or have victory over the people. And it was, this belief system was started by a guy named Nicholas of Antioch. Um, he, he taught a doctrine of compromise. So we saw the teaching of Balaam was a, a, a teaching of moral compromise. This teaching is a, a teaching of spiritual compromise. And I, I'll uh, convey the difference between the two. Um, so he, he teach this, teaches this doctrine of compromise. And here's, here's just the basics of it. In essence, he was saying things like, you know, we're living a little bit too separate. Our beliefs are a little bit too strict. I mean, look at us. We're being persecuted. There's opposition all around us. What if we, what if we you know, burnt some incense with these people? What if we, we hung out with them and built a little relationship? I mean, they're really not that bad a people. Those pagans over there? So what they sacrifice to a different god? It's, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, think about it. The persecution stops. So he introduces this, this idea of spiritual compromise into the church. And Jesus says, I hate that teaching. I hate that teaching. You have people among you that are, that are believing that it's okay, you know. Uh, it's sort of like universalism. You know, everyone gets to the same place in the end anyway, right? That's universal. That's sort of a concept of universalism, you know. It doesn't matter what, what you worship. You can worship that rock over there, you know. What you worship and what I worship. I'm not going to bother you with what you worship. You don't bother me with what I worship. There's a problem there because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So he introduces this, this doctrine of, of spiritual compromise, not lowering the standards on morality, but lowering the standards on what is allowed to be around you or in the church at Pergamum. And so this guy, um, he actually was immersed personally in occultism, Christianity, and Judaism. And so he's trying to meld the three together and come up with something that, that fits uh, a, a good theme for the people. Um, 
in essence, it's, it's okay to have one foot in both worlds, you know? You can, you can be a Christian, but you can do other things spiritually as well. Why not, you know, why not play with New Age stuff? Why not use rocks to get healed? You know, horoscopes, psychics. It's okay, you're a Christian. Why not, why not allow, I mean, they work. Different modes of healing. You know, it works. Why not, why not allow that to be, I mean, if it makes your life better, why not, why not allow that to be a part of your belief system? And this is sort of a modern day layout of what he um, was, was introducing into the church. Now, please don't get me wrong. Um, we want everyone who walks in this church to feel comfortable and welcomed and loved. But the reality is we have a doctrine that we adhere to. We have truths of the Bible that we adhere to. You know, we honor the word of God. And, and there is false religion out there. There is false teaching out there. There's stuff, there's doctrines of demons out there. That's what the Bible tells us. And, and we, don't, we don't want to be, first of all, vulnerable to allow that stuff to creep into our personal lives or into our church. And so it is imperative that we grow to a place of maturity that we know that, oh, wait a second, that's not, that's not. First of all, discernment, but understanding the word of God. Understanding the world that's trying to creep into the church and saying, no, that's, that's not for us. Because what happens, it's, it's subtle, uh, and the enemy uses it to infiltrate and to draw us away. And we think, we, we think we're doing the right thing because it seems right, it seems good, but it doesn't line up with the word of God. And this, this is the doctrine to finish up that... Uh, that um, the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans brought into place and into the church at Pergamum. There's this this uh, this paragraph that I wrote down that I want you to hear. It sort of just carries the idea of what the Nicolaitans tried to convey. It says this: We preach the doctrines of the faith handed down to us from the apostles, but if you don't agree, we will still make room for you within our worship, within our fellowship. If you disagree about the fact that there's idol worship out there and that it's wrong, you could still be counted among us. If you visit temple prostitutes, we, really, we just really don't like that. We frown on it, but you're still welcome here. If you don't believe preaching on heaven and hell because you don't believe there is a heaven or a hell or there's not one of the other, there's not one of them, you could still be a part of us. It's okay. But let me tell you something. The more that happens, the more the intermixture of the world into the church happens. And what was meant to be pure is no longer pure. It looks like the world. It worships like the world. It lives like the world. It smells like the world. It does not represent Christ's bride. It does not represent Christ's bride. What, what I want to say to you is, though, that... That God has not left us powerless. It is, it is important for us to rise up as followers of Jesus Christ. And know the difference scripturally. What's right and wrong. This is why Jesus said, I have a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. 
Do you know there's two other references in the Bible to that? One of them in chapter 1, which I already talked about, but also in Hebrews chapter 4 that said, uh, the word of God is like a double-edged sword, able to divide spirit and soul, uh, bone and marrow, something like that, and to divide the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, see through the word of God, he's, he plans on severing people and teachings from his church because he said in his very own words, I quote Jesus, I hate it. He's going to sever these kind of belief systems. Oh, it's okay. I could do what I want. Jesus still loves me. He's going to sever that. He's going to sever the the infiltration of bad spiritual doctrine and um, poor living out of how we worship Jesus Christ. He's going to sever it. It's, It's going to be cut off because he says, I'm coming for a pure and spotless bride. This is what he's coming for. And if this doesn't work, I, I failed, okay? I'm coming for, your, for a pure and spotless bride. Just keep your eye on that for one second. I'm coming for a pure and spotless bride. And here's the deal. We were never meant to be influenced from the outside. We were never meant to be negatively influenced from the inside. You know, when I look at the scriptures, I have two last scriptures, and I'm closing right now. I have two last scriptures for you. Titus 2, 2, 11 and 12 says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace teaches us to say no. Grace teaches me to say no. Listen, the temptations, the things we struggle with, there's a lot of grace that's been extended to every one of us. It teaches us to say no. There's no temptation that's too great for me to not be able to say no to it. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jesus wants his church to be separate. He called us. You know, the, the Bible, the Greek word in the Bible that's used for church, ecclesia, means called out ones. What are they called out from? They're called out from the, church, from the world. The church is separate from the world. The church shouldn't look like the world. The church shouldn't behave like the world. They're called out from the world to be separate. God's people. This is a, We have this picture in the Old Testament with the Israelites. Right? They, they were separate. They, they couldn't intermarry with other nations and other peoples. They were called to be separate. Here's the last verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. He called us to live a holy life, a holy life. And here's the problem. We've, we've, we've come to the place of compromise, maybe in our own personal lives, where it just doesn't matter anymore what I do. It just doesn't matter, you know. I, I'll do what I want. I'll clean up the mess after. 
And Jesus, Jesus is not accepting that lifestyle. He's calling us to be pure and holy. No more compromise. Amen? No more compromise related to spiritual stuff. If you're doing something, practicing something that's questionable, if you're, if you're not sure if it's good or bad, talk to somebody. This, this I know. Cults operate in secret. Behind the scenes, they hold, they, you know, uh, they, they try, and, try and keep things undercover. The reality is, expose it, talk about it, find more out about it before you give yourself to it. Amen? Amen. We live in a world where the God of the Bible and the God of this world are opposed to each other. And, and we, we, can't, we can't straddle these two places and say, it's okay. He's called us to be his own people, his own inheritance, to honor him with our lives. Amen? If you're here today and you feel like, man, I'm right in the midst, this is my life, I would encourage you to get prayer today. We're going to have our prayer team, our ministry team come up. Um, if you have questions, maybe you, like, you've been messing around with stuff that you're just not sure of, um, please ask those questions. But let's be the kind of people that represent Jesus Christ well by being a separate body for Christ. Amen? Would you stand to your feet as I close? I'll pray for you. Father, we just thank you today, God. We thank you that you're calling us to be your own people, separate, passionately in love with you. A people, Lord God, that you said that you would build the church and the gates of hell would not prevail. We're not left to be weak and uh, powerless, Lord, but you've empowered us, God. You said the gates of hell would not even stand against your church. You said that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You've called us sons and daughters. I thank you that we come with the full authority and power. We live our lives with the full authority and power that you've made available to us, God. And we give you praise for that. Father, I bless your people, God. Father, anyone, Lord, who's, Father, been in a place that hasn't fully represented you, Lord, that has, has represented that mixture of, of God and world, Lord, God, I pray that they would come out and say, no, not anymore. I'm going to stand for Jesus. My life is going to be set apart for Jesus. And in that, I give you all the praise, Lord. I bless the family of God here at Faith Chapel. May they know you. May their hearts burn for you. May they press into you more and more. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. We'll have the ministry team up here if you need prayer for any reason.